they, uh, they say that Boris Johnson long held a, a long-held plan to scale the political ladder and attain the highest office in the land, that of Prime Minister. Well, you would need to have lived on Mars these past few weeks to have missed the fact that his plans recently backfired spectacularly. Mind you, so did Michael Gove's. And then there was Andrea Leadsom. And then there was David Cameron. Of course, we don't need to focus on the, the lives and the careers of the high and the mighty to understand that we go through painful experiences in life. We need only look to our own lives and our own experiences to be sure of that. There won't be a single person in this room tonight who hasn't known past disappointments, some of them very painful indeed. Failed relationships, financial difficulties, disappointment in exam results, failure to gain promotion at work, hassle because of our faith or our ethics or our moral stance, unexpected bereavement, marriage difficulties, illness in the family, the list goes on. Now, difficult as these things are for anyone to bear, they become a distinctive problem for people of faith. How do we, on the one hand, hold the view that we have security in Christ, a loving Father in our God, the presence of His Spirit in our lives, and a wonderful future of eternal life won for us by the death and resurrection of Christ, how do we hold all that together with the difficulties, trials, persecutions even, that mire our path as we live this life that some would call this veil of tears? Well, if you want to marry together the truths of your faith with the reality of your living, then this psalm is for you, and you should listen in. But if you would place yourself in a more skeptical position, if you would say that you cannot commit to faith in God, perhaps precisely because of your experience in life, then this psalm is also for you, and you should listen in tonight. Listen in to what we see here about the trials of life and the place of praise in our response to them. Listen in tonight as we consider how the past may still hurt, but how we may still sing praise. So then, what do we learn about this from Psalm 129? This Psalm of Ascent. Did you notice that caption just at the head of the psalm when we read it? If you look back a few psalms and forward a few psalms, you'll find it's there. I think there's about 15 of them in all. What is a psalm of ascent? Actually, we can't be certain, but it's probable, as, as, as Matt said earlier, that these were psalms sung by the people of Israel on pilgrimage as they went up to Jerusalem. Just as Edinburgh Castle is situated on a prominent hill, 
a rock, so Jerusalem is situated on a prominent hill, and people went up to it. Like the castle rock, Jerusalem's hill was bounded on each side by valleys, and the only way to enter it was to climb up, to ascend. Whatever the exact use of these songs, certainly as we read them through, we see them as pilgrim songs. And in that we can identify with them, for we are all on a pilgrimage. We're all going up to Jerusalem if we're committed to a journey of faith and trust in God. You're a Christian here today. Do you see your experience, your new life in Christ as a journey? Or is it your thought that having once trusted Christ, you've arrived, all is sorted? Well, I trust not. Pilgrim language, you see, is at the heart of the Bible. Whether it's Jacob back in Genesis 49, talking to the Pharaoh of Egypt and saying about his own age, they are the years of my pilgrimage. Or whether it's in the New Testament and the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians and referring to his body as an earthly tent. In other words, he'll pitch it here today, it'll be somewhere else tomorrow, and he's just moving on. It's a journey. Pilgrim language, journey language is there throughout the Bible. But, but if you would not call yourself Christian right now, would you allow me to call your life too a, a journey, at least, if not a pilgrimage? For we all surely journey through a multitude of experiences, some of them of our own making, others of them not. I suppose the first thing we could agree on if our lives are journeys is that the experiences that we meet along the way are sadly not all positive. Well, it may surprise you to learn that the Bible doesn't shrink from that fact. The Bible never, in fact, shrinks from the realities of life, good or bad as they may be. And it routinely presents us with the personal responses and reactions of real human beings just like you and me. The Bible describes people's joy, anger, love, bewilderment, anguish, humor, every manner of human reaction and emotion. The Bible always shows us very human, very personal reactions. And just as life is a mix of good and bad experiences, so too the Bible reflects the good and bad in our lives. And never more so than in the composition of Psalm 129 and its immediate predecessor. Look back for a moment at Psalm 128. Matt took us through this last week. It focuses on the good things of life. Blessings for the man or woman of faith, verse 1. Prosperity for the man or woman of faith, verse 2. The blessings of children and family for the man or woman of faith, verse 3. Even grandchildren, verse 6. Then immediately, wham! Psalm 129, oppression for the man or woman of faith, verse 1. Physical pain for the man or woman of faith, verse 3. And apparent bitterness, anger, 
and recrimination expressed by the supposed man or woman of faith from verse 5 onwards. The Bible is nothing if not honest in how it displays all the experiences of life, everything we might go through. So how should we react? Frankly, if life continues to be difficult for the man or woman of faith, then why pursue the life of faith at all? If there's no real, tangible benefit for me, then why should I throw my lot in with God? Do you remember Matt last week describing the life of bliss that we often look for? What was it? Um, Celebrity success and a mention in Hello magazine? Or fame and money like Ronaldo has? Well, if God doesn't promise that, then why should I have anything to do with him? Well, we see from this psalm that God clearly allowed the very opposite of these things into the lives of his people, the Israelites. So my question is this, if God is going to continue to allow pain and difficulty into my life too, as a man of faith, despite my commitment to him, why should I have anything to do with him? Well, let's see what we learn about handling pain from this psalm of this pilgrim people, the Israelites. Firstly, quite clearly, they're not immune from oppression. Verse 1, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Israel has been oppressed since the days of its youth. In truth, Israel has been oppressed since it first became a nation of God's chosen people. Israel has been oppressed since the days when they were slaves back in Egypt. Israel has been oppressed since the days, the 40 years of days, they spent wandering in that desert, never settling the land they were told they were going to possess. Where was God's promise? Those of you familiar with that story will recall that that particular wandering was more to do with their wrongdoing, their sin, than anything else. It's maybe worth noting at this point that while many painful events come into our lives unbidden, others are the direct result of our own actions. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that. A plan backfired, ask Michael Gove, A marriage ruined by our own unfaithfulness or simple lack of love and care. Discipline or dismissal from work as a result of the corners we thought we could cut and get away with it. The strange thing is that even in the remembrance of pain, we find the pilgrim Israelites singing. Verse 1 is only the starter line from the presenter like Matt got us started tonight. When the congregation joins in, we get the full story. Look at verse 2. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they've not gained the victory over me. These Israelites are oppressed. They feel the full impact of oppression. And like a drowning man, they expect to go under. Yet they emerge from it. 
They survive. Victory is not won over them. That's something to sing about. The past still hurt, but they still sang God's praise. What do we learn of their hurt, their pain? Well, let's look at how these pilgrim Israelites describe it. Be warned. There's raw language and vivid images. The movie, were it to be made, would be 18 rated. The on-screen information box would note contains flogging and scenes of gore. People of a nervous disposition should look away now. Verse 3. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. That's how their pain felt. Plows dug into their back, furrows cut in their flesh, up the length of their back, turn back down again, like a field being plowed, up the length of their back, turn and back down again. These are people whose pain from the past is real, and yet who sing God's praises. As Israel looked back, they remember pain. They remember oppression, and perhaps you do too. Ambitions unfulfilled, children who've stopped following the Lord, trouble at work that you just can't cope with, financial losses that have hit you hard and hit your family hard too, pressures which have sent you over the edge. Somehow, though we may be men and women of faith, we are not immune from these things. I've got the idea. I know what to do. Better not to look back at all. (laughs) Forget it. Don't ever look back in life. Face the engine. Keep going. But consider this. If we stop looking back, we'd no longer remember the blessings either. Looking back is right. Even though at times when we look back, it brings us the pain of remembrance of what we once were, where we once were, or what we once knew. Well, God knows about that too. God knows our past. And maybe I need to tell you this tonight. God knows your past. Perhaps no one else in this room knows your past. But God does. Do you feel oppressed by some episode in your past? Is your back still scarred? Does it bear long furrows? Then I have to tell you that this psalm has good news for you. Look at verse 4. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. What's the good news? The Lord will cut you free. Strictly speaking, when you delve into this, technically doesn't say that. This is the small print. It actually only says, the Lord has cut the cords. The the idea of freedom, the consequent freedom that comes from that is just the way it's been translated. It's actually really quite a simple statement. The Lord has cut the cords. 
Do you sometimes feel like someone tied down with cords to be flogged? The Lord can cut the cords. Does it ever feel like a plow has been tied to the yoke with cords as the oxen tramp up and down and plow your back? The Lord can cut the cords. But before he does, we may need to confront a problem of our own creation. You see, one of the problems we often create for ourselves is thinking that we are to do the work that only God can do. Did you think it was your job to cut the cords? Have you been trying to work out how? If only there were a way. If only I could bring myself to deal with the past, to cope with the past, to forget the past. But we cannot and must not address this ourselves. Now, we may need pastoral or other professional help to deal with past traumas, and we should never shy away from seeking that help. But we also need to allow God to deal with us and to deal with our situation, for ultimately God will cut the cords. I wonder in your situation if you've asked him to, or if you've let him. Now, let's be honest. There's a question that's probably in all of our minds. Can we be sure that he will? Can we be sure that he wants to? In other words, how trustworthy is God? Can we really rely on him? Well, the short answer is yes. But you'd expect me to say that. So let me tell you why. Look again at verse 4. Did you notice I didn't read the whole verse? Before we hear anything about the cords being cut, we get a statement. But the Lord is righteous. Now, what does that mean? Well, to say that God is righteous is to say that he always acts in accordance with what is right. God's righteousness is never ever separated from his justice. He makes good decisions, he makes right decisions, and he never fails in that. Hear the Bible on it. Hear the patriarchs. This is Moses, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. God is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. This is Abraham now, way back in Genesis 1825. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Hear David, King David, in the Psalms, Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Cutting the cords is the action of a perfect, just, faithful, upright God who loves justice and does right. It is this God who cuts the cords. As one commentator referred to him, he is our righteous rescuer. Now, I cannot tell you how he will do it in your circumstances, 
And I cannot tell you when he will do it in your life's journey. But does he want to do it? Will he do it? Can he do it? Most certainly yes. And that above all else is the reason why we as pilgrims should sing and give him praise. You know, it's only when we get the righteousness of God that we get the second half of the psalm. At first reading, it appears full of bitterness, anger, and recrimination. It invites a shameful turning back on Israel's enemies. It wishes them all the abundant success of withering grass. And it would see them, this is the tough bit, isn't it? Deprived of blessing. Too harsh? I don't think so. You see, if you look at the second half of the verse, it starts talking about Zion. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. It doesn't say, may all who hate me. Zion in the Bible is the city of God. This is section of the psalm is focused on people's responses or actions or attitudes towards a righteous God. The Israelites aren't seeking personal revenge here. They're saying, if you set yourself against a righteous God, then you can kiss goodbye to blessing. This is as much a warning as a prayer or a song. So let me underline, there is no green light here in the second half of the psalm for personal vengeance against any individual who has hurt us. The past may still hurt, but we may still sing praise and pray that the enemies of a righteous God may not triumph. Of course, all this talk of rescue and cut cords, all this talk of God's help and singing God's praise is fruitless unless one particular rescue mission has been responded to. For the Bible teaches that we need to be rescued from our sins. The Apostle Paul, quoting the Psalms, says in Romans 3, talking about human beings, you and me, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. It's God who's righteous, not us. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The apostle Paul, sorry, the apostle John in John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. I wonder if you've reached a point where you can say with the Apostle Paul, as he wrote in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some final thoughts. Boris Johnson never made it to number 10. 
But David Cameron, of course, did, until it all came tumbling down, rather swiftly in the end. But as he stood on Downing Street addressing the nation for the last time at a podium a little smarter than this, do you remember what he talked about? <laughs> There's a bit of irony in that question. He talked about his legacy, what he believed he had achieved. If we are honest, legacy is important to all of us, you and me. We want our lives to stand for something. We want to say or leave others able to say we achieved something. It can be true for parents as they become empty nesters. It can be true for any of us in our working situation. It can be true of preachers in their ministry. It can be true of members of a congregation looking back over the years. It can even be true for members of a transition group in a building project. Notice, however, that in our psalm, Israel does not look back over what it has achieved, but at what it has survived. Is it possible that God brings trials into our lives so that we will look to Him and His righteousness rather than to ourselves and our legacy? Is it possible that God brings trials into our lives so that we will look to Him for our survival rather than to ourselves for our victory? Can we look to God and let Him cut the cords? Can we sing to Him as the Israelites did? Can we bring Him praise in all circumstances? As the preacher and author John Piper put it, can we bring God praise we didn't plan? And finally, after all this looking back, don't forget to look forward. Let me read to you from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The past may still hurt, but we may still sing God's praise. Will you join with me in responding to God in prayer? Let's pray.